the Mortal Yogi Podcast with me, Dougal Meacham. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. How's it going? Just gonna move my camera a bit. That's better. Okay. Welcome. Welcome to this episode three of Yoga Chats now in this COVID craziness. How's it going? <laughs> morning. Hey, morning, Kieran. Hey, Jane, morning. Hey, hey, Megan, nice to see you. Sarah, wow, hey. How's it going up there? Summer happening yet? Hey, Anna. Nice to see you guys. So uh, the plan for today is... <laughs> the plan for today is to can i wave back oh yeah i can oh cool i can wave okay figuring this out uh the plan for today <laughs> is to um meditate for five minutes as we always have and then um today we're gonna talk about freedom uh, or liberation as it is uh, often discussed things like the uh in the vedic texts and um, a little bit in Taoism. And we're gonna read from uh, chapter 21 of the Tao Te Ching. And then I got a couple of questions on um, muscles and, um, and we'll see else, what else comes in. Uh, if you're on the chat, then yeah, throw me some questions in. Anything's on the table um, from the profound to the banal. Uh, as long as it's yoga related, uh, throw them at me. So uh, please begin by taking a comfortable seat and resting your hands on your lap. And you can close your eyes if you like, you can keep them open. So many different ways of sitting. Relax your face. Relax your cheeks. Gently lengthen the back of your neck. And for this brief sit, simply notice your exhales of your breath.
body is a wonderful experience. Allow yourself to simply be breathed. There's nothing you have to do, no effort. You don't have to control it. manage it. You can't hold on to a breath. If you have a particularly good one, for example, you enjoyed it. Simply breathe. Notice this state. Notice your state of mind and your heart. And gradually relax your posture. and open your eyes, stretch out a little bit. We'll do a couple more waves. I like this thing. <laughs> so welcome again. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Um, uh, welcome to Yoga Chats. Again, if you just joined us, um, we're gonna talk about freedom today. 
for the first roughly uh, 20, 25 minutes. And then we're going to talk about muscles and, uh, and, um, and all that stuff. Um, I've got a great question from Chris. Um, last week we talked about beginners in um, yoga. So what about when people with big muscles come to yoga? Uh, some interesting kind of ideas and things around that. So uh, today we're gonna we're gonna talk about freedom. Uh, that's a big um, topic or a big aspect. You could say it's the aspect of um, uh, of yoga. It's in a nutshell. What is yoga? One definition. It's freedom. It's liberation. Um, there are so many different um, definitions and ways and traditions and theories and philosophies and words and Sanskrit and Latin, if you're into that kind of stuff. And it gets like, oh my God, it can become extremely um, uh, complex um, and uh, we can disagree over it. Um, so I'm gonna pull it right back to basics and talk really about some of the um, ideas uh, in, the, in early Buddhism in um, Vedic texts, which are the old texts that um, Hinduism and so much of uh, classical yoga is based off. And of course, my thing, I'm going to talk about the Tao Te Ching. If you didn't know already, my favorite version of this book is Red Pine's Tao Te Ching, but it's the same thing. It's just he writes it with D's. That's the old way. And uh, you can go and buy that pretty much anywhere. Aha. Thank you. And to come with my discussion, I have a freshly baked pan au chocolat for my family. That's the way to do it. <laughs> Good morning. Okay, so I'm going to read it in uh, Chinese. It's uh, um, uh, meant to be heard, it's not often meant to be written and read. These um, teachings of yoga and Taoism is the same, are meant to be heard. So sit back, eat your pan au chocolat. Mmm, mmm, that's particularly good. And listen. Hong de zi rong, wei dao shi tong, dao zi wei wu, wei wang wei wu, wang xi wu xi, zhong yo xiang xi, wu xi wang xi, zhong yo wu xi. Yao Xi Minxi Zong Yo Jing Xi Chi Jing Shenzhen Chi Zong Yo Xin Zi Jin Yi Gu Chi Ming Bu Chi Yi Shun Zong Yi Wu He Yi Zhi Zong Fu Zi Ran Ye. I think Chinese, classical Chinese sounds really beautiful. Now, this is chapter 21. This is a bear. Of a, of a chapter to translate. It's very, 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 very hard. Because um, it's really about mystery. And how do you write about mystery? Um, one of my other favorite um, texts of the Tao Te Ching is um, Francis Breer's A Fool's Guide to Effing the Ineffable. So that sounds good. Francis Breer's A Fool's Guide to Effing the Ineffable. I highly recommend that if you don't like um, Red Pine's slightly more kind of classical um, mainstream, if you like. And I'm just going to go with his translation because I think he, I think he hits the idea on the head. 
Mm. And freshly baked pound chocolate. So he says, the wise fool is at one with the Tao. That's all. The Tao is everywhere and nowhere. No one but many and not the same. How can the wise fool be at one with such, such mystery? He just is. The Tao is dark, ungraspable, bright and clear. How is the wise fool not confused? He just is. No more questions. This is how it's been since the beginning of time. It just is. Now, to many of you listening with modern education or Western education, like this smacks of religion and spirituality and, um, and lack of clarity and kind of wishy-washiness. What the, what is he trying to say? How can we understand this stuff? Well, first to talk about, and if you spoke, studied any Eastern philosophy, you will notice there's a very big difference between Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy. Western philosophy is very much a thinking man and woman's game. There's ideas, and I, you know, I think, therefore I am is kind of like a, is like the, a great example of this. You must think to consider human, the human existence, the human state of affairs. Eastern philosophy is very anti-intellectual, and I don't mean that in the, that it's dumb and stupid with two O's. I mean, <laughs> I watched uh, Knives Out recently, stupid with two O's, my favorite line from the movie. Um, it's not stupid with two O's, it's experiential. Eastern philosophy and Eastern um, ideas about the human um, state of affairs is experiential. And so this kind of language, this kind of stuff is talking to something which you cannot think, which you cannot intellectually like, like muscle your way into. Like, I understand this. Okay, now I got it. Now I understand life. Patanjali is not like that. Upanishads and the Vedas are not like that. Certainly Zen Buddhism and Buddhism in general and Taoism are not like that. The teacher is there to allow you and, to, and, and pull you into and experience what these teachers of old have been talking about for years. Now, you know me, you know that I think language is a wonderful way into understanding a lot of this stuff. And the word right at the beginning of this chapter I think, pulls together Upanishads, Patanjali, Buddhism, all in one go. And let me see if I can get that. There you go. There's the Chinese word there. And I know it's upside down and maybe wrong way around, but that one there, I'm going to draw it out for you. I think this encapsulates the idea of freedom and what we are trying to achieve in most yogic, tantric ideas. That's the character there. I know it might be the wrong way around, so you're going to have to use your imagination. So flip it around like horizontally. The left one there, you've been in a couple of chats ago, that's the character for a baby or for a youngling, for a child. 
This one on the whatever other side that is, that is a wing of a bird. So it's a bird with a baby. Where does a bird with a baby go? I feel like a, I feel like a primary school teacher. Like anyone can answer that. Where does a bird with a baby go? Well, they go to this place. See if I can draw one. That's where they go. They go to a nest. They go to a big place with a hole in the middle of where they can put their babies. If you've ever looked at Zen Buddhism, the circle is, is almost Zen Buddhism in a nutshell. Some people say it represents the void or nothingness or negative space. But what does a baby bird find in the nest when it first you know, is burst out of its shell? Well, it finds a safe space for it to explore the world. And exploration is the key. Exploration is the key. And you, you know, uh, birds and babies, you don't really talk to them. You have an experiential connection with them. Now, if you're a Patanjali yogi, let me bring a word which you'll be familiar with. Particularly if you know your eight limbs of Patanjali. Yama niyama asana pranayama pratyaharadharana dhyana. That word there, dhyana. Bye, Ali. Nice to see you. Dhyana. Dhyana is one of the eight limbs of Patanjali. Now, this word has been translated all across Asia. And let me give you some of the other words for it. That's the Chinese word for dhyana down the bottom. The Japanese word for dhyana is zen. Zen. What is the most kind of stereotypical archetypal thing that we all know about Zen Buddhists? They meditate a lot. They sit down and do nothing. They go into the void. They go into the unknown. The Zen experience, the Dhyana experience, the Kong experience of this first uh, uh, character in 21 of the Dada Jing is about freedom. This is not about going into the nothingness. Some people also, if you talk, read the Vedas and you read it and you think about ideas like Purusha Prakriti, mind and, and spirit versus kind of God, if you like, or the universe or the individual versus the universe. This is kind of this idea also. You are getting into a place where you are aware of freedom. What is freedom? What is with this circle trying to say? What is Kong? What is this poem of the 21st chapter trying to say? Well, there's a couple of definitions of this freedom. The first one is, which this, I think I will try and explain this, this circle, this empty circle, essentially. This circle is 
when you look at a circle, you never go like, well, that's a bad circle. A circle in itself is absolutely perfectly complete. So freedom has an aspect of perfection to it. And you know, that's why Kundalini yogis wear white purity. People who are very spiritual are often so happy. Everything is just, ah, they're just, just blissed out all the time. But it's not this kind of, um, uh, it's not only that, it's not only perfection. There is a state of affairs in the, in the experience of someone who truly understands this idea and the idea of dhyana, the idea of Zen, that you are, feel connected to everything around you. You feel not only like, you can not only put on Instagram like we are connected or we are one or let's all help each other, but you actually literally in your heart and mind without a doubt feel connected to everything. When you go outside, you are unable to separate yourself from the environment. And I don't just mean intellectually, I mean experientially. Because if you think about it, our definition of who we are, who you are, is arbitrary. You can say, I am in my head, or I am my body or I am my heart, but without your hands, would you be able to feed yourself? Without a mouth, would you be able to chew and swallow? Without the air to breathe, would you be um, able to be a living you? And we could go on playing with this idea. So throughout all of these and all of these traditions and like a hard yoga class is the same, they're all going to attack and have you question over and over and over and over again your individuality. And I don't mean that like that you're the same as everywhere, same with everyone else, but your idea of you as being separate from everybody else will be attacked continuously. And people who have this idea and, and master dhyana, master zen, not only think, but slowly become to feel that they are, they are not only at one with, but they are, they are a part of everything around them. And this is quite different again from say Western um, theology and Western spirituality, particularly Christian spirituality, because if you are everything and you are everywhere, and that would be godlike. You would be omnipotent, overly powerful, and you know, psychic, etc., etc., etc. That's not the definition of godliness or of, or of, or of uh, the highest idea of human um, consciousness in the East. It's not a, a a man with a beard who makes the world the world in six days and all that kind of stuff. It's not that. It's a experience that you are. Now you are here, you are there, you are everywhere at the same time. Now, the next misunderstanding that many of us make in this, in this kind of journey, and I like it like I was talking uh, last week with a yoga buddy about the yoga journey. And we kind of agreed that that's an overly used thing. 
because a journey has a beginning and it has a destination. And, you know, I've heard a good Irish joke, like, hi, which way is, which way is, which way is Dublin? And the Irish person says, oh, I know how you can get to Dublin, but don't start from here. You're like, uh, you have to get your head around that joke for a second. You're like, <laughs> but I am here. That is the yogic conundrum. We are not starting in a place to get to somewhere. You are, this is Buddha's idea of suffering. His first noble truth, life is suffering. You are not getting out to clasp onto something or to cling to something or to achieve something or to get to somewhere. You can't, that physically, well, that's not, that's literally not possible if you are to get to freedom. Because freedom is a kind of, has no binds, it has no limitations, it has no restrictions. And so that's the third kind of idea of this, of this circle, is that there is an, there is absolute freedom and anything could happen with that. For example, when you teach, you know, a child to use a knife, for example, they could use the knife to cut a croissant or its breakfast, last piece, or it could use the knife to stand up and stab you. This drawing of Zen Buddhism, an empty circle, is that we have within that, once you know you are and feel you are everything, you have unlimited moral and physical and spiritual or psychological power that you can do almost anything with. And Buddhism, Taoism, yoga doesn't really lay down a moral path for what you should do with that stuff. That's why you get stories like the Mahabharata and the violence of that. Um, incredibly complex. But, so, but freedom is such a, liberation is such a massive aspect of our human desire and our human mm, kind of ideal that, mm, that it doesn't really, it's not really given a moral path to what to do with it. But I would say, if you are, if you are everything and you feel everything, would you cut off your arms and legs? Would you harm other people if you know that they are you? I think the answer would probably be no. So there is nothing that you can do in this path where you're not encouraged to see it as you going from somewhere and achieving something. In fact, most teachers are going to attack the you, try and get the you out of you as much as possible. This is done, for example, if you've ever watched the Inspector Cluzo movies, the Pink Panther movies, Inspector Cluzo always comes home and in his apartment is waiting for him uh, his Cantonese Chinese um, servant who he has kind of helping him and cooking him and shopping and etc. 
And he always, he's asked him to attack me whenever I'm coming home, like when I'm least expecting it. And that's exactly what a good yoga teacher or a good Zen teacher or a good guru will do. When you're least expecting it, in old Zen Buddhism, they come out with like a, a wooden bamboo thing and slap you. Like you could just be walking along the corridor and you just get slapped by this big bamboo stick. And when you're asleep at night, the teacher could come out and just slap you uh, with a stick. And then when you could be cooking, you could get, come and get slapped. And you get into a state, the idea of this teaching, a little bit like, you know, like a level 20 yoga class. Like, uh, you know, you're having a good day and you come in and it's hip openers. And like, ah, oh, then you go in the next time it's arm balances. Ah, and the next day you go in and it's uh, forward folds. Ah, and you never know what to expect. Well, you could have two reactions to this. Number one, you could have a nervous breakdown and quit. And that happens to a, a lot of people. The second one is you just keep going and you take whatever comes at you. You take whatever comes at you, hip openers, handstands, arm balances, twists, yin yoga, whatever. You just take it, take it, take it. And you realize you are not in control. You are not able to master everything. And with that idea, with that, and it's, this could take 10 minutes, it could take 10,000 years. With this idea, eventually you realize that you, there is a symbiotic relationship, simply put, between you and everything else. And with that comes in a massive amount of freedom, of relaxation and peace. Not only intellectually, like I know, I know I'm a good person and things will be good, or I know if we just sit this thing out, we'll be fine. But if you can genuinely let go of how this COVID thing is going to go, for example, I may get sick. Some of my family may die. I may write it out and my business may triple because I've got an online yoga business and I'm nailing it. You genuinely, whatever comes, good and bad, in fact, you don't even have that label anymore. That is the meaning of dhyana. That is the meaning of zen, which is the Chinese word chan. And that is what this chapter is talking about. In a way, you know, if this has been way too Eastern spiritual, just look at Star Wars. Just look at The Hobbit. Look at any of your favorite fantastical movies. Like what's the quote from, um, I think it's The Hobbit, Frodo Baggins, all you need to do is go out of your door. You have no idea what's going to happen. And of course, it's quite an unexpected journey uh, for Frodo and for Bilbo Baggins. The ability or the, the, the absolutely natural default approach to life is just to get up and go with the flow. That is, I think, what most traditions of yoga are pointing to. 
or that they call it shamadi, shamadi, the English word same, where it comes good, bad, up, down, left, right, death, life. It's the same. It's the same to me. Shamadi. I'm an I'm equanimous with whatever comes in my life. And as I said, it's not just intellectual. Not just like a like a kind of cynical. Oh. Uh, Good or bad, I'll take it. Whatever, I don't care. It's not that. It's not that because those people actually do care. If you get really, really with them, they actually do care a lot, and they are perturbed a lot with what with what happens. So I think that is what Chapter Twenty One, the master, the true practitioner. No more questions. It just is. Is a huge aspect. Of, I think a, most Asian spiritual trends, uh, traditions of thought, of philosophy. Okay, that's chapter twenty-one of the Tao Te Ching.、Um, hey, Angus, how's it going? So、uh, I got a couple of questions coming in. Last week we spoke about、um, uh, beginners in yoga. And what do you do、uh, with beginners who are in pain? And the, the, my answer was to essentially, over time, you must uh, allow them uh, to get comfortable with pain. It's something they won't be very、uh, familiar with、um, as a way of healing themselves. They'll have a very complex and often、uh, a deep aversion to sensation in their body. It's the opposite way round. When you have um, um, big workout exercise professionals or people who know, think they know at least one aspect of their body、um, very, very well. So, what do you do when you have like a professional rugby player or sports person or semi-professional, a very, very serious amateur person come into your class and?、Um, What do you, and they and they they will they will say they know themselves very well,、um, and often you have two things,、um, two things I see happening a lot. And Chris is asking me, Chris Ward was asking me this question. I think the most dangerous first part of someone who's an experienced exercise person coming into your class is that they think they're in great shape. In amazing shape, they know exactly what they're doing, and they're going to go and try and do all the hard stuff, like in the first class. <laughs> and I see this a lot, like a lot, a lot. Like I'm a Iron Man woman thing person, and I know exactly. So I'm not going to level one flow because that's for losers. I'm going to go to the level two. Arm balance class because I know exactly what I'm doing. Well, I think any yoga teacher out there who's seen this will know, will will know exactly what I'm talking about. How does that go for them? It's normally a train wreck.、Um, often they injure themselves very very quickly,、um, and, or and they then they get very angry and all this kind of stuff. And I, I'm a big believer in cross training, so I do a lot of yoga, but I do a lot of other stuff as well. Right now,、um, 
I think I told some people last week, I'm in a, we're in a high intensity training 12 week program. <laughs> it sucks. It sucks. It's very, very humbling. Why? Well, because the modality and the way that you're using your muscles is very, very different in yoga compared to other um, training modalities. I'm going to do some little art here on my kind of mini whiteboard thing. So let's, and apologies to uh, big beefed up sports people. Like this is not necessarily exactly what you look like. But these are a bone here and a bone here. And apologies for my art. This is a big beefed up muscle right in the middle. And if you look at particularly the sexy archetype of the, of the exercising person, how do they look? Well, they are buff and everything's tight and ripped. And in muscle architecture, muscles are short and bulbous and round and defined and oh, you just want to have a bit of them. <laughs> just like a nice croissant. Very, very, you know, our culture defined, has, has pretty much defined and says that lots of short bulbous muscles are healthy and that's what you want. Let me draw a yoga muscle. Again, it's a caricature and my art is not renowned. So, you know, forgive me for my artistic lack here. A yoga muscle, by comparison, is strong, yes, but it's also much longer. I have a fairly typical yoga body. I don't do much gym until recently specifically. And my body is, my muscles are generally long. And most, um, most yoga people, for example, have quite long hamstrings in the backs of your legs. And so folding over and touching your toes and putting your forehead on your knees or shins or wherever you're going to put them, it's relatively easy. That is your hamstrings. If you are a muscular person, then this, the muscular fiber in the middle, and you're going to pull that away from that and stretch in a forward fold, that's going to hurt them big time. And it's not particularly stretchy. It's incredibly powerful but it's not particularly stretchy. A yoga person, uh, by contrast, will often not be so strong as a gym rat or a weightlifter, for example, but they're gonna be way more, um, have way better, way different ability to lengthen their muscles. And so when a gym rat comes to your yoga class, and you know, they're like this. Let me draw like a, a gym rat. And they have like this, and this, this is the, how their body's gonna look like. They're gonna look like a, you know, 
they're going to look like that. That's the yoga, no, that's the gym person coming in. Then you're going to ask them to touch their toes. Well, you're going to pull all their muscles. They could, you know, aggressively overdo it. And they're going to injure this thing over time. If a yoga person comes in, let me do a, like a level five Ashtanga person comes into your class. Well, they don't look like that. Let me see if I can give them a little bit of a more dramatic thing. Yeah, they're going to look like, <laughs> they're going to look like that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Carla, I'm doing my best. They're going to have flowing hair because they're so flea, free and liberal because they've been doing all the Dhyana Dimana, Dhyana Shamadi stuff. And they're going to easily touch their toes and all the other stuff because they've been doing yoga. Now, yeah. And <laughs> totally, Andrea. So, and these two archetypes in the, in the, in the um, exercise world, they don't see eye to eye. They think they're weak. They think they're ugly looking and fat and unbendable. And they don't, they don't agree on the other's body, lifestyle, philosophical outlook, tattoo selection, anything at all. They don't agree at all. Who is right? Who is wrong? Another question to be thrown out to the crowd there. Well, it's totally up to you. It's totally up to you. We in yoga, we think that, you know, you got to, to bend your toes, uh, bend your toes, to bend and touch your toes. Well, that's, that's, that's nirvana, man. But to a rugby player, to be extremely bendy or an American football player, that's extremely dangerous. They, they need to be very, very compact and very, very steady and stable. So when this person goes to the gym, it's going to hurt because you're shortening their muscles. You're going to shorten your muscles big time. Where am I going? Where's my... When these muscles go into the gym and that's asked of them, like contract, 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 contract. I'm not calling you fat, Andrea. <laughs> contract, contract. Well, that's going to hurt. You're asking the muscle to do a very different thing. When this person comes to your yoga class and they buff, bulked up muscle and you say lengthen, 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 lengthen. Well, they're going to find that very difficult and that's going to hurt. So, I'm, and I'm kind of giving very extreme opposites here just for slightly entertaining purposes, but also to make two very different extremes very clear. So, when you're, so to get back to Chris Ward's question, like when, uh, so when this person comes into your class, when the buff person comes in, well, you're going to essentially their, their fascial collagen fibers, which wakes up, makes up their muscle. You're going to ask them to be stretching it and stretching it. And that's reshaping and reforming that muscle fiber. That's going to hurt. And it doesn't happen in one class. They think they're fit. They think they're the, the, the thing, but not in yoga. And when yoga people go to the gym 
And when yoga people go and, and try and shorten their muscles, well, then they find that very difficult. And same thing. So you have a choice, person in life. You can go for that type of body, or you can go for, I like the hair particularly, like you could go for that type of body. You have a choice. Arnold Schwarzenegger and The Rock, and your favorite weightlifter person, like that guy who just broke um, the deadlift weight, I think he's like off Game of Thrones or whatever, like they've made that choice. Most of us yoga people, we make, yeah, that's actually your hair, Carla, yeah. Most of us yoga people, I mean, I've given up the hair, but most of us make that choice. Yes, exactly. And you could be in between. And I see this a lot in amongst, um, like inst on Instagram, so cute. Like you see like um, people like, you know, this kind of like, like this kind of thing with, uh, and they've got an amazing body or they're buff or whatever. So some people make, they do a little bit of yoga, they do a little bit of gym, and they're trying to find somewhere in between because they're, you know, they're going on hot dates or that's where they want their body to be or whatever. And if that's the case, you're never going to be able to do some of the really big or it's going to be harder to do some of the really deep, foldy, bendy stuff. You're never going to be super strong, but you've chosen um, uh, a kind of a happy place between those two extremes. So, Chris, when somebody, uh, no hot dates for me, just want to be healthy. <laughs> totally, I get you. Like, I'm past hot dates as well. Uh, well, I, I, I eat dates, but they're not hot. Uh, my favorite food at the moment. Um, that kind of date. Uh, so when, um, when a gym person comes in to your class and they think they, they've nailed everything and you're asking them to be stretchy and bendy, then they're going to be challenged. And you have to explain to them that yoga is a very different, uh, workout compared to overly, overly yoga, uh, gym stuff is contraction focused, contracting the muscles. Whereas yoga is contraction, of course, with things like Chaturanga Dandasanas and handstand and all that good stuff. But we're also lengthening muscles a lot also. And that's redesigning, reshaping, um, and everything with your muscles. So people, you're gonna have to pull, you're gonna have to get the non-yoga people from last week to, to push themselves. And you're gonna have to get a lot of the, the gym and the workout and the like the A-type people to come back and um, and not kill themselves and be a little bit more compassionate to themselves and try and but it's not their thing. They're they're not naturals, they're not naturals at letting go. Um, so good luck. Uh, okay. So I hope that helps um, for teaching more advanced people. So uh, for more advanced gym people. So this week we've been talking about uh, chapter 21 in the Dao De Jing, which is all about freedom. The Zen circle drawn 
I think, is very much inspired by the Chinese character Kong, which is the word that Confucius, his, his surname is Kong. And it's a, a drawing of a bird with a child, which is in that round nest. It's an empty space. It's a void. It's like the guru in, um, in yoga um, philosophy. The guru is the empty one, the, the weighty one. It keeps pulling you out of your, of your um, ideas and preconceptions and habits, etc., etc., etc. As always, we'll finish by sitting. So please take a comfortable seat. Rest your hands on your lap. Soften your eyes. your jaw. And consider not considering for the next few minutes. There will be a aspect of your mind which says, let's think about this and let's wonder about that and how about this and this is boring, can't we just stop here and notice that But there is a, another aspect of your mind that you have very little control over. That is the experiencing aspect of your mind. You cannot control what odors and smells come towards your nose. how the light shines on your eyes. How your skin senses its environment.
Simply notice that. That's all. idea of dhyana, of Zen, same word or Chan in Chinese, points to these aspects of your mind. We're often afraid of this, that which we cannot control. These teachings ask us to go there and go there and go there and go there over and over again. Until like Inspector Clouseau, we just know that Cato is going to attack. That's okay. It's also going to cook us a good Chinese meal. To going both aspects of yourself. Have a wonderful day wherever you are. Thank you for listening or watching. Shanzai. Namaste. Take care. See you around.